Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 305 of Forgotten Classics, where we are reading The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. Before we get back to it, though, let me tell you about a couple of great episodes of podcasts. I've mentioned both these podcasts in general before, but these two particular episodes were so good that I wanted to make sure you didn't miss them, especially if you're like me and you like so many podcasts that you have to kind of just pick and choose and you kind of forget about some of them sometimes. The first one is Desert Island Discs. That is a BBC show that is, oh my gosh, long running. It goes back to the um, maybe the 1940s. Their archive is huge. And they will take a famous person and ask them what eight discs they would have on a desert island if they were cast away. And they also let them choose a book and a luxury item. So their most recent guest was Tom Hanks. Now, I like Tom Hanks anyway, like most of America, and I think most of the world. He's like Jimmy Stewart used to be, except a better actor. You know, he's the everyman we love. So I was really curious to hear what music he'd choose, and usually that brings you into talking about your life some. And the interviewer's good. She'll ask a lot of different in-depth questions. Tom Hanks was, I feel, both friendly and just the way you'd want him to be, and also very open. He's obviously used to talking about his life, and it was just a wonderful experience. Plus, he dropped a few little nuggets of wisdom in there that you think, you know, well, I liked them because they reinforced things I already thought. But um, I think they're good things to be reminded of. And if you hadn't thought about some of the things he says, then that's good too. So look for Desert Island Discs, the Tom Hanks episode. The other episode of a podcast that I really liked was from Gravy. This is a podcast run by the Southern Foodways Alliance, and they talk about, well, Southern food, and specifically the way it shows how the South is changing, or what the South is like under the surface that we may not be aware of already. This particular episode is about the restaurant chain Cracker Barrel. And I was particularly interested because I had seen the signs for Cracker Barrels for years and years whenever we were driving around and had always been curious. But our MO when we're driving is to we pack a lunch, we go through a fast food place so we don't really have to stop. And one time after we had become empty nesters, maybe we were coming back from dropping somebody off in Chicago for school or something. Anyway, we were taking it slow and easy and we stopped at a Cracker Barrel and I absolutely was thrilled to be able to get a bowl of pinto beans and cornbread and then some turnip greens. Oh my gosh. Now the person who's doing this episode of gravy doesn't really give the food there the due. I think that it deserves mostly because maybe she hasn't had really terrible versions of these things. I was so pleased to find a basic version that was delicious. And I also was very pleased it wasn't McDonald's. So 
I fell in love with this place. Not the the gift shop part, not the decorations, but just the food and the friendliness and all this stuff. So not only was I interested in this restaurant, which I recommend, but the person doing the podcast is from Australia. And so she turns it into not just looking at a restaurant, but of course, looking at a culture, both from a cooking standpoint and from the standpoint of this restaurant chain, which I really knew nothing about. And also from the standpoint of her coming to grips with marrying into a family of Southerners who are very, very different from her. I have a feeling I'm standing in between these two sets of people, the way she described herself and her family. And I can only imagine how difficult this has been for all of them. But it's a wonderful piece about all those things, family, community, and I don't know, just growing together, I think. So definitely listen to that. I'll put links to both in the podcast notes. But you can, of course, find them on iTunes or I don't know, however you get your podcasts. I'm sure they're there. Okay, now back to the bat. First of all, was anybody else laughing out loud? I actually laughed out loud at Miss Cornelia's pistol practice. Annie sitting behind the tree, clutching her ears, shrieking like a banshee. Um, And the way (laughs) Miss Cornelia was shooting at stuff, and she was like, next time I'll have Billy set up a target. Oh, good thinking. But of course, that puts a gun into play. When she said, just put it down over on that table or in that drawer or whatever, I thought, well, that's that's not going to be good. That's going to come up later. And then... I also really liked the way that Miss Cornelia let herself get freaked out by the dark house, the storm coming, being alone. And so what does she do? Hey, Lizzie, why don't we get out the Ouija board? That'll settle our nerves. Oh, my gosh. No matter whether you believe in the Ouija board as a channeling device for spirits from another world or whatever, aren't you just going to be freaking yourself out even more? That was just nuts. It really made me laugh. And then there's the conversation about ghosts that starts going on in that chapter where, of course, Lizzie's telling her stories, but you've got Billy coming in at the very end. And Billy has been, well, he hasn't been a major player, so we don't really know Billy, but he's been pretty impassive. He's just been, you know, the servant who shows up and he does whatever, brings lemonade, whatever he does. So you really don't expect Billy, though his placidity remains unruffled, as they say, to talk about finding windows open, nobody's there, the door slamming, nobody's there, and then a door slams and no one's there. Oh my gosh. So let's dive in and find out if we can catch a ghost. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood Chapter 5 Alopecia and Rubiola Miss Cornelia dropped her newspaper. Lizzie, frankly frightened, gave a little squeal and moved closer to her mistress. Only Billy remained impassive, but even he looked sharply in the direction whence the sound had come. Miss Cornelia was the first of the others to recover her poise. Stop that. It was the wind. 
she said a little irritably. The stop that addressed to Lizzie, who seemed on the point of squealing again. I think not wind, said Billy. His very lack of perturbation added weight to the statement. It made Miss Cornelia uneasy. She took out her knitting again. How long have you lived in this house, Billy? Since Mr. Fleming built. Hmm, Miss Cornelia pondered. And this is the first time you have been disturbed? Last two days only. Billy would have made an ideal witness in a courtroom. He restricted himself so precisely to answering what was asked of him in as few words as possible. Miss Cornelia ripped out a row in her knitting. She took a deep breath. What about that face Lizzie said you saw last night at the window? She asked in a steady voice. Billy grinned as if slightly embarrassed. Just face, that all. A man's face? He shrugged again. Don't know. Maybe. It there? It gone. Miss Cornelia did not want to believe him. But she did. Did you go out after it? She persisted. Billy's yellow grin grew wider. No, thanks, he said cheerfully with ideal succinctness. Lizzie, meanwhile, had stood first on one foot and then on the other during the interrogation, terror and morbid interest fighting in her for mastery. Now she could hold herself in no longer. Oh, Miss Nellie, she exploded in a graveyard moan. Last night when the lights went out, I had a token. My oil lamp was full of oil, but do what I could. It kept going out too. The minute I shut my eyes, out that lamp would go. There ain't a surer token of death. The Bible says let your light shine, and when a hand you can't see puts your lights out. Good night. She ended in a hushed whisper, and even Billy looked a trifle uncomfortable after her climax. Well, now that you've cheered us up, began Miss Cornelia undauntedly, but a long ominous roll of thunder that rattled the panes in the French windows drowned out the end of her sentence. Nevertheless, she welcomed the thunder as a diversion. At least its menace was a physical one, to be guarded against by physical means. She rose and went over to the French windows. That flimsy bolt. She parted the curtains and looked out. A flicker of lightning stabbed the night. The storm must be almost upon them. Bring some candles, Billy, she said. The lights may be going out any moment. And Billy, as he started to leave, there's a gentleman arriving on the last train. After he comes, you may go to bed. I'll wait up for Miss Dale. Oh, and Billy, arresting him at the door. See that all the outer doors on this floor are locked, and bring the keys here. Billy nodded and departed. Miss Cornelia took a long breath. Now that the moment for waiting had passed, the moment for action had come, she felt suddenly indomitable, prepared to face a dozen bats. Her feelings were not shared by her maid. I know what all this means, moaned Lizzie. I tell you, there's going to be a death, sure. There certainly will be if you don't keep quiet, said her mistress acidly. Lock the billiard room windows and go to bed. But this was the last straw for Lizzie, a picture of two long, dark flights of stairs up which she had to pass to reach her bedchamber rose before her, 
and she spoke her mind. I am not going to bed, she said wildly. I am going to pack up tomorrow and leave this house. That such a threat would never be carried out while she lived made little difference to her. She was beyond the need of truth's consolations. I asked you on my bended knees not to take this place two miles from a railroad, she went on heatedly. For mercy's sake, Miss Nellie, let's go back to the city before it's too late. Miss Cornelia was inflexible. I'm not going. You can make up your mind to that. I'm going to find out what's wrong with this place if it takes all summer. I came out to the country for a rest, and I'm going to get it. You'll get your heavenly rest, mourned Lizzie, giving it up. She looked pitifully at her mistress's face for a sign that the latter might be weakening, but no such sign came. Instead, Miss Cornelia seemed to grow more determined. Besides, she said, suddenly deciding to share the secret she had hugged to herself all day, I might as well tell you, Lizzie, I'm having a detective sent down tonight from police headquarters in the city. A detective? Lizzie's face was horrified. Miss Nellie, you're keeping something from me. You know something I don't. I hope so. I dare say he will be stupid enough. Most of them are. But at least we can have one proper night's sleep. Not I. I trust no man, said Lizzie. But Miss Cornelia had picked up the paper again. The bat's last crime was a particularly atrocious one, she read. The body of the murdered man. But Lizzie could bear no more. Why don't you read the funny page once in a while? She wailed and hurried to close the windows in the billiard room. The door leading into the billiard room shut behind her. Miss Cornelia remained reading for a moment. Then, was that a sound in the alcove? She dropped the paper, went to the alcove, and stood for a moment at the foot of the stairs, listening. No, it must have been imagination. But while she was here, she might as well put on the spring lock that bolted the door from the alcove to the terrace. She did so, returned to the living room, and switched off the lights for a moment to look out at the coming storm. It was closer now, the lightning flashes more continuous. She turned on the lights again as Billy re-entered with three candles and a box of matches. He put them down on a side table. "'New gardener, come,' he said briefly to Miss Cornelia's back. Miss Cornelia turned. Nice hour for him to get here. What's his name? Say his name Brooke, said Billy, a little doubtful. English names still bothered him. He was never quite sure of them at first. Miss Cornelia thought. Ask him to come in, she said. And, Billy, where are the keys? Billy silently took two keys from his pocket and laid them on the table. Then he pointed to the terrace door, which Miss Cornelia had just bolted. Door up there, spring lock, he said. Yes, she nodded, and the new bolt you put on today makes it fairly secure. One thing is fairly sure, Billy. If anyone tries to get in tonight, he will have to break a window and make a certain amount of noise. But he only smiled his curious, enigmatic smile and went out. And no sooner had Miss Cornelia seated herself when the door of the billiard room slammed open suddenly and Lizzie burst into the room as if she had been shot from a gun, her hair wild, 
her face stricken with fear. I heard somebody yell out in the grounds, away down by the gate, she informed her mistress in a loud stage whisper which had a curious note of pride in it, as if she were not too displeased at seeing her doleful predictions so swiftly come to pass. Miss Cornelia took her by the shoulder, half startled, half dubious. What did they yell? Just yelled a yell. Lizzie. I heard them. But she had cried wolf once too often. You take a liver pill, said her mistress disgustedly, and go to bed. Lizzie was about to protest both the verdict on her story and the judgment on herself when the door in the hall was opened by Billy to admit the new gardener. A handsome young man in his late twenties, he came two steps into the room and then stood there respectfully with his cap in his hand, waiting for Miss Cornelia to speak to him. After a swift glance of observation that gave her food for thought, she did so. "'You are Brooks, the new gardener?' the young man inclined his head. "'Yes, madam. The butler said you wanted to speak to me.' Miss Cornelia regarded him anew. His hands look soft for a gardener's, she thought, and his manners seem much too good for one, still. Come in, she said briskly. The young man advanced another two steps. You're the man my niece engaged in the city this afternoon? Yes, madam. He seemed a little uneasy under her searching scrutiny. She dropped her eyes. I could not verify your references as the Brays are in Canada, she proceeded. The young man took an eager step forward. I am sure if Mrs. Bray were here, he began, then flushed and stopped, twisting his cap. We're here, said Miss Cornelia in a curious voice. Are you a professional gardener? Yes. The young man's manner had grown a trifle defiant, but Miss Cornelia's next question followed remorselessly. "'Know anything about hardy perennials?' she said in a soothing voice, while Lizzie regarded the interview with wondering eyes. "'Oh, yes,' but the young man seemed curiously lacking in confidence. "'They, they're the ones that keep their leaves during the winter, aren't they?' "'Come over here, closer,' said Miss Cornelia imperiously. Once more she scrutinized him, and this time there was no doubt of his discomfort under her stare." "'Have you had any experience with Rubiola?' she inquired finally. "'Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes, indeed,' the gardener stammered. "'Yes.' "'And alopecia?' pursued Miss Cornelia. The young man seemed to fumble in his mind for the characteristics of such a flower or shrub. "'The dry weather is very hard on alopecia,' he asserted finally." and was evidently relieved to see Miss Cornelia receive the statement with a pleasant smile. "'What do you think is the best treatment for your tacaria?' she propounded with a highly professional manner. It appeared to be a catch question. The young man nodded his brows. Finally, a gleam of light seemed to come to him. "'Your tacaria frequently needs, uh, thinning,' he announced decisively. Scratching, you mean? Miss Cornelia rose with a snort of disdain and faced him. Young man, your tacaria is hives, rubiola is measles, and alopecia is baldness, she thundered. 
She waited a moment for his defense. None came. Why did you tell me that you were a professional gardener? She went on accusingly. Why have you come here at this hour of night pretending to be something you're not? By all standards of drama, the young man should have wilted before her wrath. Instead, he suddenly smiled at her, boyishly, and threw up his hands in a gesture of defeat. I know I shouldn't have done it, he confessed with appealing frankness. You'd have found me out anyhow. I don't know anything about gardening. The truth is, his tones grew somber. I was desperate. I had to have work. The candor of his smile would have disarmed a stonier-hearted person than Miss Cornelia, but her suspicions were still awake. That's all, is it? That's enough when you're down and out. His words had an unmistakable accent of finality. She couldn't help wanting to believe him, and yet he wasn't what he had pretended to be, and this night of all nights was no time to take people on trust. How do I know you won't steal the spoons? she queried, her voice still gruff. Are they nice spoons? he asked with absurd seriousness. She couldn't help smiling at his tone. Beautiful spoons! Again, that engaging boyish manner of his touched something in her heart. Spoons are a great temptation to me, Miss Van Gorder. But if you'll take me, I'll promise to leave them alone. That's extremely kind of you. She answered with grim humor, knowing herself beaten. She went over to ring for Billy. Lizzie took the opportunity to gain her ear. I don't trust him, Miss Nellie. He's too smooth, she whispered warningly. Miss Cornelia stiffened. I haven't asked for your opinion, Lizzie, she said. But Lizzie was not to be put off by the Van Gorder manner. Oh, she whispered, you're just as bad as all the rest of them. A good-looking man comes in the door, and your brains fly out the window. Miss Cornelia quelled her with a gesture, and turned back to the young man. He was standing just where she had left him, his cap in his hands, but while her back had been turned, his eyes had made a stealthy survey of the living room, a survey that would have made it plain to Miss Cornelia, if she had seen him, that his interest in the Fleming establishment was not merely the casual interest of a servant in his new place of abode. But she had not seen, and she could have told nothing from his present expression. "'Have you had anything to eat lately?' she asked in a kindly voice. He looked down at his cap. Mm, "'Not since this morning,' he admitted as Billy answered the bell. Miss Cornelia turned to the impassive Japanese. "'Billy, give this man something to eat, and then show him where he is to sleep.' She hesitated. The gardener's house was some distance from the main building, and with the night and the approaching storm she felt her own courage weakening into the bargain— whether this stranger had lied about his gardening or not, she was curiously attracted to him. I think, she said slowly, that I'll have you sleep in the house here, at least for tonight. Tomorrow we can. The housemaid's room, Billy, she told the butler, and before their departure she held out a candle and a box of matches. Better take these with you, Brooks, she said. The local light company crawls under its bed every time there's a thunderstorm. "'Good night, Brooks.' "'Good night, ma'am,' said the young man, smiling. Following Billy to the door, he paused. "'You're being mighty good to me,' 
he said diffidently, smiled again, and disappeared after Billy. As the door closed behind them, Miss Cornelia found herself smiling too. That's a pleasant young fellow, no matter what he is, she said to herself decidedly, and not even Lizzie's feverish, Haven't you any sense taking strange men into the house? How do you know he isn't the bat? could draw a reply from her. Again the thunder rolled as she straightened the papers and magazines on the table, and Lizzie gingerly took up the Ouija board to replace it on the bookcase with the prayer book firmly on top of it. And this time, with the roll of thunder, the lights in the living room blinked uncertainly for an instant before they recovered their normal brilliance. There go the lights, grumbled Lizzie, her fingers still touching the prayer book as if for protection. Miss Cornelia did not answer her directly. "'We'll put the detective in the blue room when he comes,' she said. "'You'd better go up and see if it's all ready.' Lizzie started to obey, going toward the alcove to ascend to the second floor by the alcove stairs. But Miss Cornelia stopped her. "'Lizzie, you know that stair rail's just been varnished. Miss Dale got a stain on her sleeve there this afternoon. And Lizzie, yes, am no one is to know that he is a detective, not even Billy. Miss Cornelia was very firm. Well, what shall I say he is? It's nobody's business. A detective, moaned Lizzie, opening the hall door to go by the main staircase, tiptoeing around with his eye to all the keyholes. A body won't be safe in the bathtub. She shut the door with a little slap and disappeared. Miss Cornelia sat down. She had many things to think over. If I ever get time really to think of anything again, she thought, because with gardeners coming who aren't gardeners, and Lizzie hearing yells in the grounds, and... She started slightly. The front doorbell was ringing, a long trill, uncannily loud in the quiet house. She sat rigid in her chair, waiting. Billy came in. Front door key, please, he asked urbanely. She gave him the key. Find out who it is before you unlock the door, she said. He nodded. She heard him at the door, then a murmur of voices, Dale's voice, and another's. Won't you come in for a few minutes? Oh, thank you. She relaxed. The door opened. It was Dale. How lovely she looks in that evening wrap, thought Miss Cornelia. But how tired, too. I wish I knew what was worrying her. She smiled. Aren't you back early, Dale? Dale threw off her wrap and stood for a moment patting back into its smooth, smart bob, hair ruffled by the wind. I was tired, she said, sinking into a chair. Not worried about anything. Miss Cornelia's eyes were sharp. No, said Dale without conviction. But I've come here to be company for you and I don't want to run away all the time. She picked up the evening paper and looked at it without apparently seeing it. Miss Cornelia heard voices in the hall, a man's voice, affable. How have you been, Billy? Billy's voice in answer. Very well, sir. Who's out there, Dale? She queried. Dale looked up from the paper. Dr. Wells, darling, she said in a listless voice. He brought me over from the club. I asked him to come in for a few minutes. Billy's just taking his coat. She rose, threw the paper aside, came over and kissed Miss Cornelia suddenly and passionately. 
then before Miss Cornelia, a little startled, could return the kiss, went over and sat on the settee by the fireplace near the door of the billiard-room. Miss Cornelia turned to her with a thousand questions on her tongue, but before she could ask any of them, Billy was ushering in Dr. Wells. As she shook hands with the doctor, Miss Cornelia observed him with casual interest. Wondering why such a good-looking man in his early forties, apparently built for success, should be content with the comparative rustification of his local practice. That shrewd, rather aquiline face, with its keen gray eyes, would have found itself more at home in a wider sphere of action, she thought. There was just that touch of ruthlessness about it which makes or mars a captain in the world's affairs. She found herself murmuring the usual conventionalities of greeting. Oh, I'm very well, doctor. Thank you. Well, many people at the club? Not very many, he said with a shake of his head. This failure of the Union Bank has knocked a good many of the club members sky high. But how did it happen? Miss Cornelia was making conversation. Oh, the usual thing. The doctor took out his cigarette case. The cashier, a young man named Bailey, looted the bank to the tune of over a million. Dale turned sharply toward them from her seat by the fireplace. "'How do you know the cashier did it?' she said in a low voice. The doctor laughed. "'Well, he's run away, for one thing. The bank examiners found the deficit. Bailey, the cashier, went out on an errand and didn't come back. The method was simple enough. Worthless bonds substituted for good ones with a good bond on the top and bottom of each package.' So the package would pass a casual inspection, probably been going on for some time. The fingers of Dale's right hand drummed restlessly on the edge of her settee. Couldn't somebody else have done it? She queried tensely. The doctor smiled, a trifle patronizingly. Of course the president of the bank had access to the vaults, he said. But as you know, Mr. Courtley Fleming, the late president, was buried last Monday... Miss Cornelia had seen her niece's face light up oddly at the beginning of the doctor's statement, to relapse into lassitude again at its conclusion. Bailey! Bailey! She was sure she remembered that name on Dale's lips. Dale, dear, did you know this young Bailey? she asked point-blank. The girl had started to light a cigarette. The flame wavered in her fingers. The match went out. Yes, Slightly, she said. She bent to strike another match, averting her face. Miss Cornelia did not press her. What with bank robberies and communism and the income tax, she said, turning the subject. The only way to keep your money these days is to spend it. Or not have any, like myself, the doctor agreed. It seems strange, Miss Cornelia went on. Living in Courtly Fleming's house, a month ago I'd never even heard of Mr. Fleming, though I suppose I should have. And now, why, I'm as interested in the failure of his bank as if I were a depositor. The doctor regarded the end of his cigarette. As a matter of fact, he said pleasantly, Dick Fleming had no right to rent you the property before the estate was settled. He must have done it the moment he received my telegram announcing his uncle's death. Were you with him when he died? Yes, in Colorado. He had angina pectoris and took me with him for that reason. But with care, he might have lived a considerable time. 
The trouble was that he wouldn't use ordinary care. He ate and drank more than he should, and so... I suppose, pursued Miss Cornelia, watching Dale out of the corner of her eye, that there is no suspicion that Courtly Fleming robbed his own bank? <laughs> well, if he did, said the doctor amicably, I can testify that he didn't have the loot with him. His tone grew more serious. No, he had his faults, but not that. Miss Cornelia made up her mind. She had resolved before not to summon the doctor for aid in her difficulties. But now that chance had brought him here, the opportunity seemed too good a one to let slip. Doctor, she said, I think I ought to tell you something. Last night and the night before, attempts were made to enter this house. Once an intruder actually got in and was frightened away by Lizzie at the top of that staircase. She indicated the alcove stairs. And twice I have received anonymous communications threatening my life if I did not leave the house and go back to the city. Dale rose from her settee, startled. I didn't know that, Auntie. How dreadful, she gasped. Instantly, Miss Cornelia regretted her impulse of confidence. She tried to pass the matter off with tart humor. Don't tell Lizzie, she said. She'd yell like a siren. It's the only thing she does like a siren, but she does it superbly. For a moment, it seemed as if Miss Cornelia had succeeded. The doctor smiled. Dale sat down again, her expression altering from one of anxiety to one of amusement. Miss Cornelia opened her lips to dilate further upon Lizzie's eccentricities. But just then, there was a splintering crash of glass from one of the French windows behind her. Chapter 6. Detective Anderson Takes Charge What's that? Somebody smashed a window pane and threw in a stone. Wait a minute, I'll... The doctor, all alert at once, ran into the alcove and jerked at the terrace door. It's bolted at the top, too, called Miss Cornelia. He nodded without wasting words on a reply, unbolted the door, and dashed out into the darkness of the terrace. Miss Cornelia saw him run past the French windows and disappear into blackness. Meanwhile, Dale, her listlessness vanished before the shock of the strange occurrence, had gone to the broken window and picked up the stone. It was wrapped in paper. There seemed to be writing on the paper. She closed the terrace door and brought the stone to her aunt. Miss Cornelia unwrapped the paper and smoothed out the sheet. Two lines of coarse, round handwriting sprawled across it. Take warning. Leave this house at once. It is threatened with disaster, which will involve you if you remain. There was no signature. Who do you think wrote it? asked Dale breathlessly. Miss Cornelia straightened up like a ramrod. Indomitable. A fool, that's who. If anything was calculated to make me stay here forever, this sort of thing would do it. She twitched the sheet of paper angrily. But... Something may happen, darling. I hope so. That's the reason I... She stopped. The doorbell was ringing again, shrilling, insistent. Her niece started at the sound. Oh, don't let anybody in, she besought Miss Cornelia, as Billy came from the hall with his usual air of walking on velvet. Key, front door, please, bell ring. 
he explained tersely, taking the key from the table. Miss Cornelia issued instructions. See that the chain is on the door, Billy. Don't open it all the way. And get the visitor's name before you let him in. She lowered her voice. If he says he is Mr. Anderson, let him in and take him to the library. Billy nodded and disappeared. Dale turned to her aunt, the color out of her cheeks. Anderson, who is Mr. Miss Cornelia did not answer. She thought for a moment. Then she put her hand on Dale's shoulder in a gesture of protective affection. Dale, dear, you know how I love having you here, but it might be better if you went back to the city. Tonight, darling, Dale managed a wan smile, but Miss Cornelia seemed serious. There's something behind all this disturbance, something I don't understand, but I mean to. She glanced about to see if the doctor was returning. She lowered her voice. She drew Dale closer to her. The man in the library is a detective from police headquarters, she said. She had expected Dale to show surprise, excitement, but the white mask of horror which the girl turned toward her appalled her. The young body trembled under her hand for a moment like a leaf in the storm. Not... The police, breathed Dale in tones of utter consternation. Miss Cornelia could not understand why the news had stirred her niece so deeply. But there was no time to puzzle it out. She heard crunching steps on the terrace. The doctor was returning. Shh, she whispered. It isn't necessary to tell the doctor. I think he's a sort of perambulating bedside gossip. And once it's known the police are here, we'll never catch the criminals. When the doctor entered from the terrace, brushing drops of rain from his no longer immaculate evening clothes, Dale was back on her favorite settee, and Miss Cornelia was poring over the mysterious missive that had been wrapped about the stone. He got away in the shrubbery, said the doctor disgustedly, taking out a handkerchief to fleck the spots of mud from his shoes. Miss Cornelia gave him the letter of warning. Read this, she said. The doctor adjusted a pair of pince-nez, read the two crude sentences over, once, twice. Then he looked shrewdly at Miss Cornelia. Were the others like this? he queried. She nodded. Practically. He hesitated for a moment like a man with an unpleasant social duty to face. Miss Van Gorder, may I speak frankly? Generally speaking, I detest frankness, said that lady grimly. But go on. The doctor tapped the letter. His face was wholly serious. I think you ought to leave this house, he said bluntly. Because of that letter? Huh. His very seriousness, perversely enough, made her suddenly wish to treat the whole matter as lightly as possible. The doctor repressed the obvious annoyance of a man who sees a warning, given in all sobriety, unexpectedly taken as a quip. There is some deviltry afoot, he persisted. You are not safe here, Miss Van Gorder. But if he was persistent in his attitude, so was she in hers. I've been safe in all kinds of houses for sixty-odd years, she said lightly. It's time I had a bit of a change. Besides, she gestured toward her defenses. This house is as nearly impregnable as I can make it. The window locks are sound enough, the doors are locked, and the keys are there. 
She pointed to the keys lying on the table. As for that terrace door you just used, she went on, I had Billy put an extra bolt on it today. By the way, did you bolt that door again? She moved toward the alcove. Yes, I did, said the doctor quickly, still seeming unconvinced of the wisdom of her attitude. Miss Van Gorder, I confess, I'm very anxious for you, he continued. This letter is ominous. Have you any enemies? Don't insult me. Of course I have. Enemies are an indication of character. The doctor's smile held both masculine pity and equally masculine exasperation. He went on more gently. Why not accept my hospitality in the village tonight? He proposed reasonably. It's a little house, but I'll make you comfortable. Or... He threw out his hands in the gesture of one who reasons with a willful child. If you won't come to me, let me stay here. Miss Cornelia hesitated for an instant. The proposition seemed logical enough. More than that, sensible, safe. And yet some indefinable feeling, hardly strong enough to be called a premonition, kept her from accepting it. Besides, she knew what the doctor did not that help was waiting across the hall in the library. Thank you, no, doctor, she said briskly, before she had time to change her mind. I'm not easily frightened, and tomorrow I intend to equip this entire house with burglar alarms on doors and windows, she went on defiantly. The incident, as far as she was concerned, was closed. She moved on into the alcove. The doctor stared at her, shaking his head. She tried the terrace door. There, I knew it, she said triumphantly. Doctor, you didn't fasten that bolt. The doctor seemed a little taken aback. Oh, I'm sorry, he said. You only pushed it part of the way, she explained. She completed the task and stepped back into the living room. The only thing that worries me now is that broken French window, she said thoughtfully. Anyone can reach a hand through it and open the latch. She came down toward the settee where Dale was sitting. Please, doctor. Oh, wh what are you going to do? said the doctor, coming out of a brown study. I'm going to barricade that window, said Miss Cornelia firmly, already struggling to lift one end of the settee. But now Dale came to her rescue. Oh, darling, you'll hurt yourself. Let me... And between them, the doctor and Dale moved the heavy settee along until it stood in front of the window in question. The doctor stood up when the dusty task was finished, wiping his hands. It would take a furniture mover to get in there now, he said airily. Miss Cornelia smiled. Well, doctor, I'll say good night now and thank you very much, she said, extending her hand to the doctor, who bowed over it silently. Don't keep this young lady up too late. She looks tired. She flashed a look at Dale, who stood staring out at the night. I'll only smoke a cigarette, promised the doctor. Once again, his voice had a note of plea in it. You won't change your mind now? He asked anew. Miss Van Gorder's smile was obdurate. I have a great deal of mind, she said. It takes a long time to change it. Then, having exercised her feminine privilege of the last word, she sailed out of the room, still smiling, and closed the door behind her. The doctor seemed a little nettled by her abrupt departure. 
It may be me, he said, turning back toward Dale, but forgive me if I say I think it seems more like foolhardy stubbornness. Dale turned away from the window. Then you think there really is danger? The doctor's eyes were grave. Well, those letters. He dropped the letter on the table. They mean something. Here you are, isolated, the village two miles away, and enough shrubbery round the place to hide a dozen assassins. If his manner had been in the slightest degree melodramatic, Dale would have found the ominous sentences more easy to discount. But this calm, intent statement of fact was a chill touch at her heart. And yet... But what enemies can Aunt Cornelia have? she asked helplessly. Any man will tell you what I do, said the doctor with increasing seriousness. He took a cigarette from his case and tapped it on the case to emphasize his words. This is no place for two women practically alone. Dale moved away from him restlessly to warm her hands at the fire. The doctor gave a quick glance around the room. Then, unseen by her, he stepped noiselessly over to the table, took the matchbox there off its holder, and slipped it into his pocket. It seemed a curiously useless and meaningless gesture, but his next words evinced that the action had been deliberate. "'I don't seem to be able to find any matches,' he said with assumed carelessness, fiddling with the matchbox holder. Dale turned away from the fire. "'Oh, aren't there any? I'll get you some.' she said with automatic politeness, and departed to search for them. The doctor watched her go, saw the door close behind her. Instantly, his face set into tense and wary lines. He glanced about, then ran lightly into the alcove and noiselessly unfastened the bolt on the terrace door, which he had pretended to fasten after his search of the shrubbery. When Dale returned with the matches, he was back where he had been when she had left him glancing at a magazine on the table. He thanked her urbanely as she offered him the box. So sorry to trouble you, but tobacco is the one drug every doctor forbids his patients and prescribes for himself. Dale smiled at the little joke. He lit his cigarette and drew in the fragrant smoke with apparent gusto. But a moment later, he had crushed out the glowing end in an ashtray. By the way, has Miss Van Gorder a revolver? he queried casually, glancing at his wristwatch. Yes, she fired it off this afternoon to see if it would work. Dale smiled at the memory. The doctor, too, seemed amused. If she tries to shoot anything, for goodness sake, stand behind her, he advised. He glanced at the wristwatch again. Well, I must be going. If anything happens, said Dale slowly, I shall telephone you at once. Her words seemed to disturb the doctor slightly, but only for a second. He grew even more urbane. I'll be home shortly after midnight, he said. I'm only stopping at the Johnsons on my way home. One of their children is ill, or supposed to be. He took a step toward the door, then he turned toward Dale again. Take a parting word of advice, he said. The thing to do with a midnight prowler is let him alone. Lock your bedroom doors and don't let anything bring you out till morning. He glanced at Dale to see how she took the advice, his hand on the knob of the door. Thank you, said Dale seriously. Good night, doctor. Billy will let you out. He has the key. 
<laughs> By Jove, laughed the doctor. You are careful, aren't you? This place is like a fortress. Well, good night, Miss Dale. Good night. The door closed behind him. Dale was left alone. Suddenly her composure left her. The fixed smile died. She stood gazing ahead at nothing, her face a mask of terror and apprehension. But it was like a curtain that had lifted for a moment on some secret tragedy and then fallen again. When Billy returned with the front door key, she was as impassive as he was. Has the new gardener come yet? He here, said Billy stolidly. Name Brooke. She was entirely herself once more when Billy, departing, held the door wide open to admit Miss Cornelia Van Gorder and a tall, strong-featured man, quietly dressed, with reticent, piercing eyes. The detective. Dale's first conscious emotion was one of complete surprise. She had expected a heavy-set, blue-jowled vulgarian with a black cigar, a battered derby, and stubby policeman's shoes. Why, this man's a gentleman, she thought. At least he looks like one, and you can tell from his face he'd have as little mercy as a steel trap for anyone he had to catch. She shuddered uncontrollably. Dale, dear, said Miss Cornelia with triumph in her voice. This is Mr. Anderson. The newcomer bowed politely, glancing at her casually and then looking away. Miss Cornelia, however, was obviously in fine feather and relishing to the utmost the presence of a real detective in the house. This is the room I spoke of, she said briskly. All the disturbances have taken place around that terrace door. The detective took three swift steps into the alcove, glanced about it searchingly. He indicated the stairs. That is not the main staircase. No, the main staircase is out there. Miss Cornelia waved her hand in the direction of the hall. The detective came out of the alcove and paused by the French windows. I think there must be a conspiracy between the Architects Association and the Housebreakers Union these days, he said grimly. Look at all that glass. All a burglar needs is a piece of putty and a diamond cutter to break in. But the curious thing is, continued Miss Cornelia, that whoever got into the house evidently had a key to that door. Again she indicated the terrace door, but Anderson did not seem to be listening to her. Hello, what's this? he said sharply, his eye lighting on the broken glass below the shattered French window. He picked up a piece of glass and examined it. Dale cleared her throat. It was broken from the outside a few minutes ago, she said. The outside? Instantly, the detective had pulled aside a blind and was staring out into the darkness. Yes, and then that letter was thrown in. She pointed to the threatening missive on the center table. Anderson picked it up, glanced through it, laid it down. All his movements were quick and sure, each executed with the minimum expense of effort. Hmm, he said in a calm voice that held a glint of humor. Curious, the anonymous letter complex. Apparently someone considers you an undesirable tenant. Miss Cornelia took up the tale. There are some things I haven't told you yet, she said. This house belonged to the late courtly Fleming. He glanced at her sharply. The Union Bank. 
Yes, I rented it for the summer and moved in last Monday. We have not had a really quiet night since I came. The very first night I saw a man with an electric flashlight making his way through the shrubbery. You poor dear, from Dale sympathetically, and you were here alone. Well, I had Lizzie, and, said Miss Cornelia with enormous importance, opening the drawer of the center table, I had my revolver. I know so little about these things, Mr. Anderson, that if I didn't hit a burglar, I knew I'd hit somebody or something. And she gazed with innocent awe directly down the muzzle of her beloved weapon, then waved it with an airy gesture beneath the detective's nose. Anderson gave an involuntary start. Then his eyes lit up with grim mirth. Would you mind putting that away? he said suavely. I like to get in the papers as much as anybody, but I don't want to have them say, omit flowers. Miss Cornelia gave him a glare of offended pride, but he endured it with such quiet equanimity that she merely replaced the revolver in the drawer with a hurt expression and waited for him to open the next topic of conversation. He finished his preliminary survey of the room and returned to her. "'Now you say you don't think anybody has got upstairs yet?' he queried. Miss Cornelia regarded the alcove stairs. "'I think not. I'm a very light sleeper, especially since the papers have been so full of the exploits of this criminal they call the Bat. He's in them again tonight.' She nodded toward the evening paper. The detective smiled faintly. "'Yes.' He's contrived to surround himself with such an air of mystery that it verges on the supernatural, or seems that way to newspaper men. I confess, admitted Miss Cornelia, I've thought of him in this connection. She looked at Anderson to see how he would take the suggestion, but the latter merely smiled again, this time more broadly. That's going rather a long way for a theory, he said, and the bat is not in the habit of giving warnings. "'Nevertheless,' she insisted, "'somebody has been trying to get into this house night after night.' Anderson seemed to be revolving a theory in his mind. "'Any liquor stored here?' he asked. Miss Cornelia nodded. "'Yes.' "'What?' Miss Cornelia beamed at him maliciously. Eleven bottles of homemade elderberry wine. "'You're safe.' The detective smiled ruefully. He picked up the evening paper, glanced at it, shook his head. I'd forget the bat in all this. You can always tell when the bat has had anything to do with a crime. When he's through, he signs his name to it. Miss Cornelia sat bolt upright. His name? I thought nobody knew his name. The detective made a little gesture of apology. That was a figure of speech. The newspapers named him the Bat because he moved with incredible rapidity, always at night, and by signing his name. I mean, he leaves the symbol of his identity, the Bat, which can see in the dark. I wish I could, said Miss Cornelia, striving to seem unimpressed. These country lights are always going out. Anderson's face grew stern. Sometimes he draws the outline of a Bat at the scene of a crime, once, in some way, he got hold of a real bat and nailed it to the wall. Dale, listening, could not repress a shudder at the gruesome picture, and Miss Cornelia's hands gave an involuntary twitch as her knitting needles clicked together. 
Anderson seemed by no means unconscious of the effect he had created. How many people in the house, Miss Van Gorder? My niece and myself. Miss Cornelia indicated Dale, who had picked up her wrap and was starting to leave the room. Lizzie Allen, who has been my personal maid ever since I was a child, the Japanese butler and the gardener, the cook and the housemaid left this morning, frightened away. She smiled as she finished her description. Dale reached the door and passed slowly out into the hall. The detective gave her a single sharp glance as she made her exit. He seemed to think over the factors Miss Cornelia had mentioned. Well, he said after a slight pause, you can have a good night's sleep tonight. I'll stay right here in the dark and watch. Would you like some coffee to keep you awake? Anderson nodded. Thank you. His voice sank lower. Do the servants know who I am? Only Lizzie, my maid. His eyes fixed hers. I wouldn't tell anyone I'm remaining up all night, he said. A formless fear rose in Miss Cornelia's mind. You don't suspect my household, she said in a low voice. He spoke with emphasis, all the more pronounced because of the quietude of his tone. I'm not taking any chances, he said determinedly.